You know, it was uh, 1952, July 4th, actually, 1952, when a lady named Florence Chadwick stepped off the coast of Catalina Island and uh, was going to swim that 26-mile channel to the Gulf or to the coast of California. This is her behind me. And, you know, long-distance swimming was not new to Florence. She had actually become the first woman ever to swim the English Channel both ways. It's an amazing thing. And yet on that day, July 4th, 1952, 15 hours into her swim from the Catalina Island towards California, she became very wearied. Later she would say she became discouraged. You see, while she was swimming... The fog set in around her, and she couldn't see ahead of her. She could barely see the boat that was next to her with her uh, family and with her trainers on board. And not only had the fog set in, but there was a concern about sharks. And so that was in the back of her mind. And then the bone-chilling water. And so 15 hours of swimming and the fog that surrounded her made it almost impossible for her to continue. She began to tell her trainer in the boat, you've got to pull me in. I'm not going to be able to finish. And her trainer kept encouraging her, you've come this far. You can do it. Don't give up now. Hang in there. You've got this. And she said, I can't. You've got to pull me in. And they pulled her into the boat. It was only then that she realized she was only one mile from the shore. Later, she told the reporters, I'm not making excuses But if I could have seen the shoreline, I think I could have finished. But because the fog, I couldn't see the finish line. And I became discouraged and weary, and I quit. But Florence went back a couple of months later, and she finished. And she finished in an amazing way. And her name is in the history books because she was able to make that great 26-mile swim from Catalina Island to California. And she said the difference was that time she could see the shore. She could see the goal. She could see the finish line. And it gave her the encouragement that she needed to keep going, even when it was tough. I don't know about you, but there are times when it feels like the fog of circumstances and problems and pain and evil and sickness and hurt and racism can close in on you. And in those moments, your faith can be hard. It can be hard to hold on. It can be hard to stay motivated. It can be hard to stay encouraged. Maybe you put on your best Sunday morning clothes and you put on a smile on your face, but you're still hurting deep down and you're wondering, is any of this worth it? Because I'm hurting. And you can't see barely in front of you one step after the next. And you're wondering, is this worth it? Maybe I should just throw in the towel. Why go to church? Why read my Bible? Why pray? Why try to tell others about Jesus? Why try to stay sober? Why try to fight this good fight? Sometimes we get discouraged. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, either you're not a Christian (laughs) or you haven't been one long. Because the easiest thing that I do as your pastor is to preach to you on Sunday morning about faith. The hardest thing I do is to live it day by day in the nasty now and now. 
We talk about the sweet by and by and how awesome it's going to be when Jesus comes back and things are right. But in the meantime, it's hard. It's difficult. And we are overwhelmed at times with questions and fears and concerns and tribulations. And we don't know how to keep going. And not to discourage you, but I want you to know that you're not alone. You're not the first to feel that way if you've ever struggled with your faith. From the very beginning, followers of Jesus Christ have found it hard at times to follow Jesus. It's not always easy to follow him and live for him. It's not always popular. It's not always convenient. It's not always going to be your best life now in following Jesus. Sometimes it's going to be hard. It's going to be agonizing. You're going to have to fight for every inch of ground in spiritual victory. And in those moments when you become weary and discouraged, is there any hope? I instinctively turn to the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 12 in my own personal life. And in Hebrews chapter 12, where I want to take you today in verses 1 through 3, we see the writer of this book of Hebrews, and we don't know exactly who it is. There are speculations about who it is, but we don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But this Christian is writing to other Christians who were wearied because of the circumstances of their lives. While they have not yet experienced physical persecution, while their blood has not yet been shed because of their faith in Jesus by hostile forces around them, they are very close. And because the pressure is mounting on them and it's becoming more intense on them, they're getting wearied and they're getting discouraged. They're finding it hard to live for Jesus when their own family members and friends ridicule their faith, when it seems like their whole society has turned against them, when it seems like it'd just be easier to go back to the way things were before you trusted Jesus. And so this writer of Hebrews is saying, don't go back. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel of your faith. In fact, He's writing this letter to encourage them in the midst of their pain. That whatever has got you down, you can overcome when you have faith in Jesus Christ. He's wanting them to know that there is a way up and out of these painful problems through faith in Jesus Christ. And he's not just wanting to give them a pep talk. I mean, he wants to encourage them, but this is more than a pep talk. This is pointing them to Jesus, the only one who can really help them. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, he uses the metaphor, he uses the imagery of runners on a race course, running their foot race. That's you, that's me, in in this life, running a race of faith. And we're in a grandstand, in a stadium filled with people in the grandstands who are cheering us on. And this is what he writes in Hebrews chapter 12, Verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read from the New King James Version this morning. He writes, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. May God bless the reading of his holy word. The writer of Hebrews is saying, there is a way to overcome whatever's got you down. And the way is faith in Jesus. And as you run your race, he gives you some helpful instructions and some encouragement on how to run your race of faith when it's not easy. Can I give those to you? As, as I look at this, I see him telling us, first of all, run your race with spiritual encouragement. Run your race with spiritual encouragement. He's got this picture of runners on a race course. That's me and you in this life living for Jesus. Surrounded by people in the grandstands who are cheering us on. He puts it this way. Therefore, seeing that we are compassed about, see that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. He's, he's, he's referring to those people who are cheering us on. And who are those people? Well, they're the people that he just wrote about in Hebrews chapter 11. We sometimes call chapter 11 the great hall of fame of faith. And in that chapter, he's written about the great people of the Old Testament who lived their lives by faith in God. And even when things were painful and difficult and dangerous, they kept their faith and they discovered you can overcome whatever's got you down when you put your faith in God. And he says, you're a runner on a race course. And those people who have run their race before you've run yours are now in the grandstands and they're witnesses to you. Seeing we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The Greek word is marturon. It's where we get our English word martyr from. And the word marturon can be used in a couple of different ways. It can refer to people who see something. They're witnesses. They're watching us as we live our lives and we run our race of faith. And as they're up there watching us down here, they're witnesses. But I think probably what he's referring to is not so much that they're witnesses in what they see, they're witnesses in what they say. Because that's another way the word witness is used. Jesus said we will be his witnesses. We'll say something about him in this world. And these people in the grandstands who have lived their life, who have died and gone on to glory, are now cheering us on and they're saying something to us. They're saying, whatever's got you down, you can overcome when you keep your faith in God. That's what they're saying to us. They're not preaching judgment whenever you stumble and you fall. They're not preaching condemnation because you're finding it difficult today to truly believe what you believe. They're not laughing at you because you're sitting here this morning questioning, is any of this even real? No, they've been where you are. They've been on that race course. They've been in the agony of the race. And they've now discovered you can overcome whatever's got you down when you keep your faith in God. And who are those people? I mean, he lists a bunch of them. He names a lot of them. And then he tells us about how many more are unnamed heroes of the faith, that nobody remembers their name but God himself. And they too have gone on. Some of those people up there, they're Noah. He mentions Abraham. He mentions Jacob. He mentions Samson. He mentions David, the 
shepherd boy who became king of Israel. They're listed in Hebrews chapter 11 in the great hall of fame of faith. And now he tells us they're in the grandstands of glory and they're cheering you on. And what are they saying? Abraham is saying, yes, I lied about my relationship with my wife. Noah says, yes, the first thing I did after God saved me and my family through the ark was to get drunk. Jacob says, yes, my name means trickster. And I was a con artist extraordinaire. Samson says, yes. I upheld God's laws by day and I broke them by night. And David says, yes, I did. Everything you read about me is true. I committed adultery with Bathsheba. I got her pregnant. And to cover up my crime, I conspired to have her husband Uriah killed in battle. Those are the people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 who he now says are in the grandstands of glory cheering us on. I'm trying to figure out how they made it, to be honest with you. When you think about what they did and what are they saying to us? What they're saying is Noah saying, you know what? Yes, I got drunk, but I got sober again and God restored me. Abraham says yes, and I learned through my failures to trust God no matter what and to tell the truth no matter the consequences. Jacob says yes, I wrestled with God and he changed me from the inside out and he named me Israel, prince of God, no more a con artist. And Samson says yes, I broke God's laws by day, by night, But God, in the last moment of my life, by faith in him, helped me to overcome the passions of my flesh with the power of the Holy Spirit. And I was victorious even over my enemies. And David says, yes, I did all those ugly things that I'm ashamed of, but God broke me. I repented of my sin. And in the end, I became a man after God's own heart. And those are the people who were up in the grandstands cheering us on, saying, don't you dare give up. There is a way to overcome what's got you down when you keep your eyes on God. Those are the people, not not figments of some writer's imagination flowing from his pen. These are real people, not fictional people. They're blood and bone and skin like me and you. And they learned to live by faith in God. And now they're cheering us on. Hang in there. And when you run your race, run with spiritual encouragement. It's one of the reasons you need to read your Bible. Old Testament and New It's one of the reasons you ought to read the great biographies of the Christians who have lived before us so that we can be inspired by their faithful examples. It's why we eulogize the people in our own lives who lived for the Lord and who have now gone on to glory. And we remember them and we learn the lessons from their lives. I think about some of the people from this church who are now in the grandstands of glory cheering us on, even when life is difficult. There's some of our family members, some of our friends, and they're saying there's a way. When you keep your eyes on God, run with spiritual encouragement. I think the writer also would have us to run with strategic efficiency. Because he not only says, wherefore seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, he also says, Therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. We are to run with strategic efficiency. We're to lay aside whatever will slow us down in our faith in God. Back in the 1990s, uh, the Nike Corporation spent millions of dollars and years of research and development on creating what they would later call the Nike Swift Suit for their Olympian athletes. The first Swift Suit was uh, debuted at the Sydney Olympics in 2000, sponsored and developed and encouraged and promoted by world champion sprinter Marion Jones. The Swift Suit was this head-to-toe suit, skin tight, that had been developed with different types of fabrics and textures in order to shave off milliseconds of a runner's time or an athlete's time. And I thought about that even all those years ago, how intent we are in the things of this world to shave off milliseconds of an athlete's time, recognizing the importance. If you want to win the race, you don't need to let anything slow you down during the race. And yet how little attention we give as followers of Jesus to those things in our lives that impede our faith and our forward progress in our faith with Jesus. We just go through the motions as followers of Jesus. We think that we can check off a box on Sunday morning that I went to church or I I tuned in and that's enough. And then the rest of the week we just live our lives and do our thing and we keep Jesus on a shelf until we need him. And then we wonder why at times we get weary. We wonder why at times we get discouraged. We wonder why at times we, we are not winning the race of faith like we think we ought to. Perhaps it's because there are things in our lives that are slowing us down. And we need to cut them out. We need to lay them aside. He mentions them. He mentions the two categories of things that might be slowing us down in our relationship with Jesus. He calls them, first of all, he says, let us lay aside every weight. And then secondly, the sin in the New King James Version. Weights are just neutral things. They don't have to necessarily be evil things. They can be just good things in a bad place of your life or a good thing at the wrong time in your life. In those ancient days of the Isthmian Games in Corinth or the Olympic Games, uh, runners would often train by weighting their bodies down, weighting their wrist, weighting their ankles so that they could run while they're training in order to build up endurance. But no serious competitor would race with weights. They would strip those things off when it came time to run the race. And there are things in our lives, there are things in my life, in your life that are good, they're not bad, they're neutral, but they could be in the wrong place at the wrong time when it comes to living for Jesus. Netflix may or may not always be a bad thing, but sometimes we're not in our Bibles because we're in Netflix. Yep, I said it. I said it. (laughs) Oh, I just can't read my Bible, I get so bored, but we binge watch Eight episodes of a series that we love. And maybe we need to carve out some time. Maybe it's the bass boat or the lake lot or the deer stand or the golf clubs. There, I'm trying to spread the misery around. How was that? How was that? Let's get off Netflix for a moment and find something else. 
It could be my hobby that gets in the way of me being diligent in my relationship with God in prayer and in Bible study and in worship attendance and in serving the Lord. It could be that there are just some good things that I need to put in their proper place so I can focus on the most important thing, and that is loving God, loving others, and serving the world like Jesus has called me to. But then he does get down to meddling, doesn't he, the writer of Hebrews? When he, he doesn't just say the weights, he also says the sin. Yeah, he goes there. That sometimes we followers of Jesus act like it's all those people out there who are sinners, and we forget we too are sinners. And at times there are sins in our lives that we need to put the knife to, we need to cut out of our lives because they're not helping us, they're hurting us. They're slowing us down. They're impeding our forward progress in learning more about God and trusting Him more. They're impeding our witness to Jesus in a lost world. They're not helping us live lives that bring glory and honor to God. They're self-centered things. Because the problem with sin is that middle letter, I. That's my problem with sin. It's, it's all about me. I'm the problem. And sometimes we need to come to the point where we just admit this is sin in my life and it's not helping me. It's holding me back. I could be better in my faith in Christ if I would deal with this once and for all. And he says it's time to lay it aside. It's time to call the counselor and deal with that anger issue. It's time to get in to celebrate recovery and face up to the fact you're a Christian who struggles with addiction. It is time to go to the pastor and say, I've been wrong in my attitude towards other people and it's sin that I've got to repent of. Because the writer of Hebrews says, if you're going to run your race of faith, you've got to run with strategic efficiency. And here's the good news. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, John the Apostle says, If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess in the Greek is homo legeo. Homo, same, legeo, word. So to confess is to say the same word God says. God calls it sin. I got to own up. God, I confess this is sin. And I need your forgiveness. And I need your cleansing. And he is faithful to answer that prayer. And he's just in answering that prayer. He's righteous when he answers that prayer to forgive you of any and all unrighteousness. How is he justified in forgiving you? Because he laid your punishment on Jesus. And Jesus willingly took it so that you could be fully forgiven. And you could walk out of here today knowing your sins are forgiven. Run with spiritual encouragement. Run with strategic efficiency. Thirdly, he, he instructs these Christians and us today in the 21st century, run with steadfast endurance. Run with steadfast endurance. Remember that scene we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses? Let us run the race with endurance. Got to run with endurance. Steadfast endurance. There again, the Greek word for race here in Hebrews chapter 12 is where we get our English word agony. The agonai. 
the agony of the race. Listen, uh, it's probably more likely you have seen Bigfoot than seen me run. <laughs> probably. Uh, I, I remember Pastor John Schultz. I was talking to him yesterday, and I remember uh, when, when he was just a church member here in the United States Navy, he called me up one day and said, hey, you and I ought to start exercising together. Why don't we meet at, I don't know, some ungodly hour, like 5 or 5.30 in the morning. I wasn't sure if God was up that early. And so I met him here at the church, and he wanted to run. Hey, let's just run. Let's run down the sidewalk. We'll run down to, to Monument, and I don't know where we were running. But I do remember this. I didn't make it to Monument when I finally had to stop <laughs> and say to John, I can either run or I can talk. I can't do both. I am dying here. <laughs> And I watch these people who run these marathons. Have you ever watched them as they cross the finish line? That look of agony on their face. It looks like they're about to keel over dead. So I just pop open another Coca-Cola. <laughs> just cheer them on. That's the word the writer of Hebrews uses, the, the agonai. Uh, Therefore, we, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run, agonize, with endurance the race that is set before us. You've got to have steadfast endurance. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. I think about some of you. You've been on the race course of faith for decades. I'm not calling you old. I'm just saying. You've been trusting Jesus for a long time. And you would be the first to stand up and say, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Living for Jesus when you're young, when you are single, or when you get married, living for Jesus when you start a family, living for Jesus in your prime years, living for Jesus when you retire, living for Jesus even when it feels like sometimes the world and life takes away more than it gives to you now. And yet you're the ones who tell us, run with steadfast endurance, because the only person who's never let me down is Jesus. That's why I love hanging out with our senior adults. Their faith is real because they've been through a lot and they have seen the faithfulness of God through it all. And they say, run with steadfast endurance. Don't give up. I know it's hard. I know it's not always easy. I know it feels like you can't put one step in front of the other, but don't give up because ours is not only the gospel of a good beginning, it is the gospel of a good finish. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the apostle Paul said that he was confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it when Christ returns. And I'm convinced of that too. That he who began that good work in you when you first placed your faith in Christ. You remember? I was 12 years old. Vacation Bible School, Corinth Baptist Church, Lake Park, Georgia. Winston Yingling, a construction worker by day, vacation Bible school teacher by night, became my hero, told me about Jesus. In that Friday night of vacation Bible school, he said, Ricky, if you were to die today and you were to stand before God, 
and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer him? And I said, I don't know, Mr. Yingling. He said, you do know because I've taught you all this week. I said, you're right, I do know. The only way I end is through Jesus. He said, exactly. And I'm going to encourage you, trust Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Let him be the Lord of your life. Let him into your life. You'll never regret it. That Sunday night, I did that. Accepted Jesus as my Savior. Went down the aisle, told the preacher, Pastor Frank O'Brien. He said, young man, why have you come? I was 12 years old. I said, because I need Jesus to save me from my sin. And so he led me in a prayer right there to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And then he said this. He said, you know, we've got water in the baptistry. If you're a follower of Jesus, you ought to get baptized. I didn't know what all that meant. I just said, yes, sir. I didn't bring clothes to change out of and into. I got baptized that night, and I went home in wet clothes. But I remember what Pastor Frank O'Brien said as I was baptized. He said, church, this young man will miss a lot of the scars we bear in our lives because he came to faith in Jesus early, whereas you and I waited. I always remember him saying that. When did you trust Jesus? How long has it been? Maybe it's been decades. Maybe it's been a few years. Maybe you're a brand new follower of Jesus. I want to tell you, run with steadfast endurance. It was 1968 Mexico City Olympics that John Stephen Ekwari crossed the finish line last, hours after the other runners had already crossed the finish line. By that point, just a gaggle of reporters were left behind. And he was limping across the finish line and they thrust their microphones in his face. Why didn't you quit? Why didn't you give up? You knew you couldn't place. Why didn't you just quit? Because early in the race, he fell and severely injured himself. And everybody assumed he would get up and quit. But instead, he got up and he limped the rest of the way. And John Stephen Akwari from Tanzania said, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start this race but to finish it. And Jesus Christ did not die on the cross of Calvary and endure all that he endured and rise from the dead and go back to the right hand of God the Father in heaven just for us to start this race. He did all that, so we'll finish it. Not by our strength, but by his. Because the only strong endurance, steadfast endurance you're going to find in this life is not in yourself. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. When we are weak, he is strong. And he works in us so that when it's all said and done, only he can get the glory. And that's why we finished with running our race, not only with, with spiritual encouragement and strategic efficiency and steadfast endurance, but we run our race with a supreme example. You see that in verses 2 and 3. He says, looking unto Jesus. He's the only supreme example Looking unto Jesus, when we leave this place today, if we walk out of here talking about Ricky, we've missed it. If we walk out of here talking about the music and whether we liked it or didn't like it, we've missed it. If we walk out of here with our eyes on each other, we've missed it. If we walk out of here with our eyes on Jesus, we found what will help us to run with steadfast endurance. He's the one looking unto Jesus. It means to... Glance, yes, at the people in the grandstands. Yes, you can be aware of the other runners on the race course, but ultimately you look away from them and you fix your eyes on Jesus. The only place in the Greek New Testament where that phrase is found. Look 
looking unto Jesus. And who is he? He is the author and finisher of our faith. He started this race of faith long before you showed up on the race course. And he's the one who saved you and put you on your race course, gave you your own lane to run in. You live your life. You can't live other people's lives. It's you and Jesus. And he's the author and he's the finisher. He finished his race. And we moan about the pain and the evil and the suffering of this world. Why are we surprised Jesus, our Savior, suffered? And he says, in this world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome this world. Look to me. Keep your faith in me. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And how did Jesus stay strong How did he recognize that he could overcome whatever got him down through faith in God? He says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Sometimes in life, you don't have to like things. You just have to endure them. And Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. It was the joy that helped him endure. What joy set before him? He's going to down a cross of Calvary. What joy? The joy of knowing that on the other side of crucifixion is coronation. On the other side of death is life. On the other side of crowds chanting crucify him, crucify him would be the day in 2022 when over 2 billion people will praise him and glorify him. That was the joy. He knew that out of his pain, God was going to work in the salvation of many. And he endured the cross, despising the shame. And now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's finished. Look beyond all those people of faith in the grandstands and look up. And you'll see in the seat of honor at the right hand of God the Father is none other than Jesus Christ God of very God, man of very man, still buried in his body the marks of Calvary. And he says, there's a way up and out by faith. Jesus didn't go to that cross with a written contract in his hand. He went to the cross with faith in his heavenly Father that he could trust him and his Father would vindicate him. And now we hear in verse 3, for consider him. Keep your eyes on him. Calculate and think about Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners against himself lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. When you feel beat down, you think about what Jesus went through and you think about what he's come through and you think about what he is now experiencing and you'll recognize there's no reason to give up. You've got a high priest who understands and who can help you. Dear friend, Jesus can give you hope when you keep your eyes on him. Is there hope in the face of suffering? Only in Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. I've gone way too long, but I want to lead us in a word of prayer. And maybe today some of you who are followers of Jesus will rededicate your lives to him, recognizing you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. But maybe for some of you, you realize you're not even on the race course of faith yet. You haven't even trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. This is the day for you. Trust him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder of your word that we can have hope when we keep our eyes on Jesus. Help us to do that today. 
looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now been seated in glory at the right hand of the throne of God. And we thank you that he is the one who will finish what he started in us too. And so in the midst of our pain and struggles and and discouragements and weariness and sin, we come to Jesus and we look to him. We'd rededicate ourselves to him. Father, there could be someone in this room today for the first time in their life, they need Jesus. I pray that right now where they sit or where they're listening or watching, they would say, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. Without you, I will burst hell wide open, but thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me on the cross, rising from the dead on the third day, and now I put my trust in you and you alone as I turn from my sin and believe in you. Thank you for the promise of your word that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's in his name we pray. Amen.